will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's where our God is taking history. And while there's hurt and pain right now, there's still hope because of what God is going to bring through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to dismiss children for Children's Church, and I guess they've dismissed themselves already. <laughs> and you can head out this north door. I want to uh, say thank you to those who helped out with the work day yesterday. Uh, we got our mulch pile down to zero and got our, our uh, mulch beds weeded and, and filled up. And I had fun with uh, guys like Gavin and Jacoby and Sam and Wesley and Ben Wenzel and six Advil later. It's great. So it was a good, uh, it was a good day. So grateful for that. So before uh, we came to Rochester, Carrie, myself, and the girls lived in an old, beautiful Queen Anne house in North Platte, Nebraska that was built by a lumber baron. And it was an amazing place. I think it was built in like 1907. But the crazy thing about that place is it had amenities or fixtures that were were really applicable for the time, but not so much now. You see, it had a it had a coal chute where you could put coal in the basement, and our our light fixtures were hybrid. They were both electric and natural gas. Isn't that crazy? There was actually a big ice chest in the back of the of of the it was more like an ice closet in the back of the kitchen. I mean, it, the the thing was. The doors were this thick to create insulation for ice, you know, to keep things refrigerated. And there was a carriage house in the back, big enough to house both a carriage and a couple large draft horses. And then out front, as you walked out the front door down to the curb, the curb was 18 inches high. So that, you know, when the carriage came by, you could actually step into the carriage without having to step down. All things really cool, but not so applicable today. In fact, some of those things were a bit of a hindrance. If you park your car next to an 18-inch curb, you can't open the door for the passenger to get out. So, that house was really cool. It's also a money pit. But here's where I'm going with this. The point, you know, that life had kind of trans, transformed in that the power or the heating you were looking for was electricity or natural gas. And the fact that I no longer was being propelled around town by a horse and buggy, but by a car. It shows us that things can change. And although th things may be cool in the past, they're no longer useful and can sometimes get in the way. We're back in our series looking at the letter to the Colossians. If you have your Bible, you might want to open up to chapter 2. And this young church is learning to follow Jesus and realizing that, you know, the birth of the church is coming out of 
of the Jewish people. But there are some things in the past that need to be left in the past. Because there's a new covenant that's at work here. But some people are trying to say that, no, following Christ means you've got to have the old kit and caboodle of, of what we had in the past. And there were some things that were being put in front of these new believers that were just outright fallacious. It's just a, a fallacy rooted in spiritual pride and the principles of this world. And the Apostle Paul is seeking to keep them grounded in Christ as their firm foundation. And rather than these unnecessary or false foundations relating to living before the living God. So Paul already tipped his hand earlier in this chapter, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So now Paul is going to talk about three specific areas that are false foundations. So before we dig in, let me pray for us, and then we'll look at what the Lord has for us in his word. So Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your son that you sent and the hope that we have in him, the life that we have in him, and for what he has done. He did for us what we could not do. He lived a life we could not in perfect obedience. He paid a penalty that we could not pay for our sin. And then he rose again, conquering a foe we couldn't conquer. And he is our firm foundation. He is our hope. So Lord, would you help us to see those things that can lead us astray sometimes, maybe even with good intentions at moments, but they are faulty foundations. Help us to see these things. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we're going to pick it up at verse 16. He says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. For such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. And they have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you still submit to these its rules? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. These rules have to do with things that are destined to perish with use and are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, with their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Again, I call these false foundations, because they're rooted in what I think 
I can do, what we think we can do to make ourselves acceptable to a holy God. And if you were here last week, we spent a good amount of time just looking at the truth of what God's Word has said. That in Christ is the fullness of the deity of God. And He has given us His fullness. In essence, given us a circumcision done by the Holy Spirit, not by hands, that we may be, that we may put off the sinful nature or put off the flesh. We're united with Him in His death and in His life through the symbolism of baptism. We're saying, that's for me. What He did, that's for me. And when we were dead in our sins, when we were stuck, we couldn't do anything. Christ, God made us alive through Christ. And then we talked about what He has done in going to the cross. That God took the accusations against us. And He canceled them. And He nailed them to the cross. Taking them away. And not only that, He triumphed over the powers and authorities of those accusing voices and has made a spectacle of them. We have victory in Christ because of what He has done. Not because of what we have done, but because of what He has done. So, we're getting back to these false foundations that are based upon what you or I can do. So the first false foundation I want to point to is rigorous religiosity. Verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are all a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, as I've said the last few weeks, what this false teaching was is, is not crystal clear. Whether it's you know, Jewish mysticism or Greek elementalism or some sort of a combination thereof, but it's real clear that there are Jewish elements, Old Testament teachings in here. In essence, they were saying, you know what, if you want to be acceptable to God, you need to be following some of these Old Testament principles or these Old Testament traditions and carry them out. What you eat and what you drink, what's kosher, what is clean or unclean, that means no pork, no food that was offered to idols or strangled by blood even and had blood in it, no cheeseburgers. Did you know there's no such thing as a, as a kosher cheeseburger? Because you can't cook a, an animal in its, its mother's milk. And it may have to do with uh, what you drink, that has somehow has come, come, kind of come in contact with some sort of pagan idol worship, um, or just the fact that it came in contact with Gentiles who are not God followers. In re regard to religious festivals, think about you need to keep the Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of First Fruits and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and maybe something even like Purim. Which ones do you have to keep? It's really not clear. Which day? Are you expected to follow all of them? Just some of them? 
and new moon festivals. Did you know the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, not a solar one? And so the new month is marked by a new moon. And that changes a lot of things. That's one of the reasons why, have you ever looked in a calendar and say, oh, hey, Easter is you know, the week of Passover, and yet a week later it's usually Orthodox Easter. So well, how do I deal with that? That's because we're following two different calendars. The Orthodox Church is following the Julian calendar. I'm not trying to get into too much detail here, but I'm saying this is, this is like, okay, you have to keep this calendar in order to keep these festivals and keep on this calendar. Can you imagine? That's pretty con- confusing for a, a Gentile person who's trying to go, I'm just trying to follow Jesus here. And then Sabbath days. A Hebrew, Jewish distinctive for God's Old Testament people, but really not part of the, the Gentile lifestyle. And as the gospel spread, they started worshiping on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, because that's when Jesus rose from the dead. Does that mean I've got to worship on, on the Sabbath and the Lord's Day? Or do I make a choice? I don't know. So all these things are coming down the pipeline for these new believers in Christ. These false teachers are saying, you must do these things in order to be acceptable to God. And yet Paul says, do not let anyone judge you by these things. Don't let them get in the way of God or take the place of what God says and what God has done in Christ. Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. But the reality, however, is found in Christ. The author of Hebrews 10.1 says pretty much the same thing. The law is a shadow of the good things to come, but not the realities themselves. As you look at the Old Testament, these festivals, these regulations, they are a shadow of what God is going to do to help make mankind clean and acceptable to himself. But they're not the reality. The reality is Christ himself. He is the fulfillment. Romans 10.4 says, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Jesus plus the law, or any other addition of rigorous religiosity, is a false foundation. It is Christ alone. That's what Paul is trying to communicate to the Colossians and to us. And it's always interesting. There are Christians, and all all of this is God's word, okay? But we are going, we have gone from an old covenant to a new covenant. And I always find it interesting when some Christians want to start following the Old Testament law. And I go, okay, it, it, all right. And then they insist that, that others do that too. And I go, this, okay, we're going down a pathway that is eliminating Christ. It's, again, it's kind of like the antiquated fixtures in my house. Yeah, they were helpful at the time. But we're not firing up the gas in those fixtures anymore. We're not opening up the coal bin anymore. 
I'm not driving around in a horse and buggy anymore. I'm living in a new era. We are living in a new covenant. Because Christ has fulfilled the law. Those things had their purpose. But they're not useful anymore. In fact, they're getting in the way of you relying on Christ. But here's the truth. Some of those things can slip into the church themselves, can't they? We start equating lifestyle choices with salvation issues. What I wear to church. I'm going to tell you, I grew up, I wore coat and tie all the way into the early 90s, partly because I was on staff, but that was what was expected. But you know, God doesn't look on the outside. He looks on the inside. Maybe abstaining from alcohol. I'm going to tell you this, there are different views on that throughout this whole congregation. All I can tell you says, God says, do not get drunk on wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But I can't make up a rule for that, although someone would like us to make up a rule for that. And I know there's abuse. I'm not denying that. But to make a rule, <laughs> equating it with the Christian life, is more than God says in his word. What music do you listen to? How do you educate your children? Is it homeschool? Are you going to let them go to public school? Which political party do you belong to? We need to be careful in these areas. Even doctrinal issues. There are secondary issues on eschatology, the Lord's Supper, baptism. Yes, they can be substantive. We can have good biblical arguments for why we believe what we believe. But if it's apart from Christ, making Him the foundation, then it is a false foundation. Titus 3.5 He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is what Christ has done, and Christ alone. Now, I think these false teachers were most likely not people who were part of the church, or else I think Paul would have been much more focused on addressing them. But they were certainly, they were certainly influencing it. But what is true is they're casting a disparaging view on the Colossians' faith in Christ. So, number two, the second false foundation I see here in this passage is seeking to have what I call heavenly or spiritual experiences. Verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with the idle notion by their unspiritual mind that they have and they have lost the connection with the head, from whom the whole body, support, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. The admonition of the beginning at verse 18 is, don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone say, you're out! Just like a, an umpire at first base saying, you're out! 
when you've clearly gotten to base uh, ahead of the ball, they're playing by different rules. Rules outside of what God has said. In this case, these false teachers delighted in humility, as the, as the Greek is translated. Now, humility is a good thing, right? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But most English translations translate this as false humility, because the end result here, at, uh, at the end of uh, verse 18, is they end up being puffed up. They're boasting in what kind of spiritual or heavenly experience they've had. Most likely, the, the world humili- word humility here is rooted in the sense of self-abasement. Self-abasement. Or fasting. I'm going somewhere with this. That's going about in a haggard and somber and disheveled way to show everyone how spiritual you are. In doing so, as Jesus warned people not to do in Matthew 6, 16. But the reason for this austere treatment and fasting and things of that nature and for going food is to bring about a heavenly or spiritual vision. And he talks about worshiping angels. Now I'm going to tell you there's no place in the scripture that commands us to worship angels. That is, that is not a biblical thought. doesn't mean people don't do it, but it's not a biblical thought. It's not a command. The worshiping of angels as intermediaries to give protection, to ward off evil against spiritual rulers and authorities. Maybe they get the idea from something like what happened to Daniel in chapter 10, where this angel comes to, to Daniel, and he's been praying not to the angel, but to God, and God sends a heavenly messenger in this angel. Say, I've been wrestling with the prince of Persia. And I'm going to wrestle with the prince of, of Greece. But, you know, Daniel's hope was in, was in God, not in these angels. And to do so actually is a denial of the direct access we have to be in the throne room of grace. With God, we don't, we don't go through intermediaries. We don't go through saints. We don't go through angels. We go because to God's throne room because of what Jesus has done. And that's where cults are born, when things like intermediaries get in the way. This could also be taken as subjective. The first one is objective, making the, the angels the object of worship. It could be subjective, where... You're entering into the worship of what angels worship. Being there in a place where they're worshiping God. I guess the, the example would be Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, where the Apostle John is, is seeing both saints and angels worship the living God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is full of your glory. And I'm there to witness that and to worship that. I mean, to, to be a part of that. What a glorious vision. And that's probably a more biblical thought. I don't know that that's what these false teachers were doing. The point is, there's an emphasis on this experience to have such a vision. 
And it leads to spiritual pride and deception. If you're not having these visions, if you're not having this experience, I question your salvation. Are you really saved? Because you're not in the vision club or whatever it is. So such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. And even worse, if they're believers, such an emphasis is apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. You're eliminating Jesus. You're eliminating your connection with Him. It's from Him from which spiritual growth takes place. Not fasting to get yourself to a place where you can have some sort of a quote spiritual experience. And listen, the Scripture is not anti-fasting, nor am I. But I know, if you deny yourself food and drink long enough, you can have a spiritual experience. Not necessarily a good experience, but it, it's, you kind of wonder, am I dealing with reality right here? That could be part of what's going on here. Again, it is disconnection from Christ. Because the end goal is to have the spiritual experience. And if you read the Bible, you know that we live in a, a spiritual realm. Even though we're in a physical realm, we live in a spiritual realm. There are forces that are for God, and there are forces that are against God. There's one chief enemy named Satan, or the devil. And he'll hap be happy to give you a spiritual experience if it keeps you disconnected from Jesus. If you look at what happened in Exodus, Moses shows up and he turned, his staff is turned into a snake. Well, you know, the magicians, by their dark arts, are able to do the same thing. It just happens that Moses' you know, staff snake eats both theirs, but there's still a supernatural experience, right? And that seems to be where things go in Revelation chapter 13, chapters 13 and 14. There are miracles that happen. To deceive people, to worship the Antichrist. So just because there's a spiritual experience does not mean it's from God. And number two, I will say this. This can be a really big dividing point in the church to have a certain spiritual experience. We can put value on having these experiences or even gifting as a litmus test for your spirituality, or even your salvation. This is what is going on in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 through 14. Do all speak in tongues? Do all prophesy? Do all have gifts of healing? The rhetorical question comes. The answer is no. That's a bad litmus test to see if you are saved or you know, just because you're not having that experience because God gives gifts as he sees fit. Not as we see fit. 
The question is, are you in Christ? Not, are you having these experiences? And it, I, what I've seen in the church is it leads to spiritual pride and it leads to division. When those, when those things become the checklist. God commands us to pursue Him, relationship with Him, but He never commands us to have these experiences. And if they happen, they happen in His timing and for His purposes, and usually it's to reveal something to us, not just to have the liver quiver. Okay? He wants to reveal something to us. I'm going to tell you there was a, a moment when I was at a crossroads in my life, and I did a prolonged fast, not because I was looking to have a spiritual experience, but because I was saying, God, I want your will for my life. And I was seeking him, and God revealed himself to me. Not, not in a vision, but just showed me something about myself. But it wasn't the question I was asking. I was asking, God, where are you taking me? And God said, Nathan, this is an area you need to work on. This is an area you need to change. So I don't set the agenda for what God wants to reveal to me. I just say, here I am. Reveal to me what I need to know. Reveal to me what you want to change in me. Yeah, take me in the direction you want me to go. And he did. But sometimes God is, has something more he wants to do that we don't even see. Don't let anyone disqualify you with this faulty standard. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Not heavenly visions or spiritual experiences. Third false foundation. Harsh treatment of the body. Verse 20. Since you die with Christ to the elemental uh, spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle do not taste. Do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom. But with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and harsh treatment of the body, <laughs> but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. I think it's a legitimate question to ask, how do I deal with my fleshly desires for sex, for food, for wealth, for power, or other things? And not all these desires are wrong in the, in the right context. Sex is a beautiful thing in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. Food. We need fuel for our body. Wages to pay bills and buy what we need. Authority to do what we've been called to do and accomplish them. But when these desires master us, they become an obsession or an addiction. It deeply affects our ability to love God and others. and Our affections are out of whack. The answer for these, for these false teachers and how I deal with this is I'm just going to be harsh with the body. I'm going to beat it up. 
And Paul does say himself, he, he, he beats his body so that he doesn't, he, he doesn't have to be mastered by it. They might not be disqualified. But I don't think that this was Paul's main strategy for bringing his body under, under control. There, these self-teachers, these self, excuse me, these false teachers, they say, don't handle, don't touch. So it's easy to see how some of the Old Testament purity laws might have come into this, because there are some things that if you touched, you were deemed unclean until sundown. However, I think it might have gone beyond harsh treatment of the body. To deprive yourself of food, of drink, of contact with others even. Sleep, maybe. Proper clothing, even. Because if I beat up my body, then all of its desires will go away. doesn't work that way. Later on, even, there were monks that would go into what's called self-flagellation. They would actually take whips and hit themselves, thinking that would master their desires. It didn't. It just inflamed them. I'm just going to take a secular illustration. This may work, this may not. But one of the most disciplined, most regimented, both punishing organizations in the United States is the United States Marine Corps. When they're going through training, they get beat up by their drill sergeant and all that training and and all that. And you know what? When they go on liberty, they are out of control. None of that self-discipline comes into play. You see, flesh, trying to control the flesh, does not work. Flesh, trying to control the flesh, does not work. It's a false foundation. Verse 22, these rules have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use based on merely human commands and teachings. I'm sorry. Equating your relationship on denying yourself with, equating your relationship with God on, on denying yourselves the things that ultimately perish will fail. They're man-made rules. In verse 23, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack the value of restraining sensual indulgence. They're not effective in controlling our flesh, our sinful nature. Again, flesh fighting flesh does not work. For the Christian, it is putting on Christ. It is putting on Christ. And that doesn't mean you don't make some practical decisions. If you have a problem with alcohol, you should probably stay away from the liquor store. But it is putting on Christ. Galatians 5, 16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Later on in that same passage, it lifts off the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and the last of which is self-control. It is generated by letting Christ live his life in us, not by us white-knuckling it through harsh treatment of the body.
It is Christ. All these Christless foundations, rigorous religiosity, seeking heavenly or spiritual experiences, or harsh treatment of the body, are ultimately false foundations when it comes relating to a holy God. Apart from Him, they are empty. But to put on Christ, know that He is our hope of glory. And He is the one who has circumcised us so that we can put off the flesh. Is the way of walking in Him in a way that honors Him. But ultimately, He's done all that we, all that He's done everything we can. <laughs> he's done everything to satisfy God's justice and make us His. So may He have His way in us. Let me pray, and then I'll invite the worship team to come and close us. Lord, so oftentimes we are people of action and we want to make something happen. But the only way we can do that is by abiding in you. And so Lord, help us to set aside things that we might think are wise or even spiritual. And lean into you, Lord Jesus, to allow you to live your life in us. Again, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've come. You've taken the accusations against us. You've taken them away. You nailed them to the cross. And there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I thank you that you've come to live in us and that we can do all things through you, Lord Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, through Christ who gives us strength. So make us your people. And reign in us in every aspect. And if there's somebody who does not know you, Lord, would you be drawing that man, would you be drawing that woman to yourself? Help them to see the life that they can have in you because they cannot satisfy your standard in themselves. It is a false foundation. So help us to stand in you, Lord Jesus, our solid rock. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.